the challenge, the opportunity to connect. The 1960s, a time of imagination and change, a time of anger and fear. The 1960s, a program called Challenge. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Looked at our connections, our divisions, through the lens of faith. Nearly 60 years later, during these challenging times, we'll take a new look at our divisions, our connections, in a new program called Challenge 2.0. In last week's edition of Challenge 2.0, we examined the low voter turnout in this country and what that suggests about our sense of hope for the future. Today we talk with veteran journalists and new political candidates to examine what can be done to reinvigorate our democracy, our sense of hope, and our connection with others. Well, thank you for joining us, and we're very thankful for three panelists here that have widely varying perspectives in terms of this issue of political participation, civic participation, are joining us to share some of those and some possible solutions, some possible approaches that are different than what's been done before. So if I may just take a few moments to introduce each of you. Chris Armitage is almost nine months into your primary campaign for Washington's 5th Congressional District, and that's in the Spokane area. And uh, despite snowstorms that kept you from driving over, you flew over nonetheless, and we're very appreciative of that. Varisha Khan, you just completed your first political campaign running for and winning a seat on the Redmond City Council, and I think it was just a month ago that you actually started your duties for that, so thank you for making time. And Mike James, I had the pleasure of working with for too few years, uh, but entered hundreds of thousands of homes of Western Washington residents doing the evening news as a model of what a good TV news journalist uh, can and should well, be. Thank you. And uh, that requires no exaggeration whatsoever. And then you also ran as a candidate for the U.S. Senate back in 1994. Yes, and lost that one. Well, that's a tough year. Difficult year to run. But in our program last week, and I would like to reprise just a little bit of that, we talked about the problems that are suppressing, holding back voter participation, a sense of engagement. One question that struck me is, I just know from my personal experience, how the work day and the work week has expanded to where people have less time to consider their own. To what degree might that be a factor in low turnouts, low participation, that sort of thing? Do you think that's a factor or not really a problem? Well, if you, if, if you read some of the research about this and just the interviews that are done with people who didn't vote, it is a factor. I mean, there was one woman who talked about, uh, I remember an interview uh, just a few days ago, and she said, you know, I'm a single mom, I'm working, I'm, sometimes I'm working two jobs, I'm schlepping people back and forth in the car, I simply don't have time. And, and she said, I've hardly even thought about it, mm -hmm. uh, how I would engage, uh, you know, have the information in, in, in my mind to even vote intelligently, so I don't do it. I mean, that was a, that was a significant factor. We can talk about how you change that, uh, but I think that's a later conversation. Yeah, um, I think there's a difference in um, some of the challenges that we face and the way that we vote in federal elections and local elections. So in federal elections, as we're going to see this year, um, you know, in the next couple of months, is that you know, our primaries in Washington state require a caucus as well. And so caucuses are uh, an interesting concept and an interesting you know, way of voting, but um, 
one of the downsides of it um, is that you know it requires people to show up to a place at a very specific time, specific time. and be there for hours and sometimes you know a whole day um, and requiring people to take off of work, especially mm -hmm. folks who you know do have to work odd hours or you know on odd days of the week or you know have children and they have to find babysitting. Um, those people are often left out because they're not physically able to attend a caucus um, for you know getting their vote counted mm -hmm. in, an, in a primary election. Now, luckily, we also will have the primary this year, so we'll kind of be able to balance that out this year. Um, but I think that's something that we see across the country. Mm -hmm. Locally, what we have done as a state, which is fantastic, is move to a mail-in ballot system. Mail-in ballot, absolutely. And that yeah. is, I mean, it is amazing what we've done because we have increased our voter turnout significantly with having our ballots literally be you know in our mailboxes and in our own homes mm -hmm. and having to go no further than our mailboxes or the nearest ballot box to go turn right. it in definitely that's a that's a great way to to you know let, let me let me just make a point i said earlier in an earlier program that in belgium the turnout is 95 percent mm -hmm. uh you do have to go to a ballot uh, place and cast a ballot but they do it on a sunday and I've always wondered, why do we have our elections on a Tuesday? It's a work day. Uh, people have all kinds of other things going on. Uh, I think it's not we a holiday can, either. Yeah. yeah. Now, when the mail ballot is a tremendous thing, you're right, that's happened in the state of Washington. You can sit around a table as we are here, talk about the issues uh, with friends or with family, fill out that ballot, and then you mail it. You don't have to physically find time to go somewhere. You could do it on a Sunday or a Friday night or whatever. But I think in places where you still have to go to a ballot box, to change from a Tuesday to a Sunday would be a, tr a tremendous uh, shift, I think, in terms of people's ability to get to that ballot box. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of the challenges that we face with um, increasing voter turnout and engagement aren't accidental. I think that um, you know it's, it's a common tool for authoritarians to decrease the size of the voter pool. Mm -hmm. There's less people you need to convince to vote for you, less voting blocks. Um, and especially if the people who have the most difficult time voting, and even if that just means they get the ballot and it feels overwhelming for them after a 14-hour shift and taking care of their children, to learn about each candidate, um, that that's a whole group of people who are largely working class and marginalized communities who uh, then are just, can be effectively ignored by politicians because they're low propensity voters mm -hmm. then. And so we need to actively fight back against those barriers to voting and engagement. It's not, I don't think it's an accident that it's on Tuesdays. I don't think it's an accident that it's not a national holiday. And we need to revere voting. We need to uh, and give it its place and incentivize people in every way we can because voting also isn't just about um, have expecting the public to pick the most qualified candidate or the best candidate. It really what our founders I think intended was for as many people to hold the keys to power as possible. Mm -hmm. If the keys are in, as, in, in a, a large swath of the population's hands, then the politicians and elected officials have to do more work to get the majority of people to feel that it's in their best interest to give their vote to them. When you talk about that sense that this is something I need to do as a citizen as of this citizen. country. That goes back into what's taught in school. And it used to be, and I won't go back how far that was or how long <laughs> ago that was, but uh, when I was in high school, you had to take multiple what we called social studies or yep. civics classes. And there was a National Education Association survey that said back in the 60s, which not necessarily when I was in school, but we'll leave that, uh, the average was about three classes, three distinct classes. And now they say that's down to, on average, one or none. 
how much of that de-emphasis of civics, social studies, whatever you want to call it, government classes, do you think has contributed to this decreased participation? My opponent isn't that far from your age, and she clearly doesn't understand the Constitution. So the civics classes didn't do her a lot of favors. And I've met teachers in Ponderay County mm -hmm. uh, who absolutely teach civics classes. But to put it on the population when there are so many barriers, mm -hmm. when so many people in this country are living below the poverty line. We have counties in my district with 10% unemployment and a third of the population under the poverty line. To act as if it's just the school's fault, go ahead, blame the teachers, blame the mm -hmm. curriculum, blame the Department of Education. I think that's garbage. I think that we need to create every single opportunity for people to be able to be involved in our political system mm -hmm. and discourse, not just say we need to teach more classes. Yeah, I think, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. There's definitely a, um, you know, voter disenfranchisement or a need for civic engagement speaks to basically the institution, right? It mm -hmm. speaks to the way that we've districted our, our districts, right? And what gerrymandering has impacted us. Um, the way that, um, you know, I mean, ways that, yes, exactly, voters are, are discouraged from voting because of having to wait in poll lines and not even getting a chance mm -hmm. to turn up to even vote. Um, the days of the week and not getting time off to even vote. I mean, all those things are set up, as um, was mentioned, that, you know, it's, it's meant to exclude and it's meant to include some people. And unfortunately, that's how it, we've run it, you know, in our government for years. It's time for change. I would say that education is a component of it. It's yeah. definitely not the answer to all mm -hmm. of it, but it's definitely a component right. in that, I mean, you know, what we're seeing now, as I mentioned earlier, is that young people are now engaged politically in a way that we haven't seen in a very long time, mm -hmm. given that you know high school students, middle school students are part of the Sunrise Movement or part of you know climate action groups or part of um, the March for Our Lives, right, and, and fighting um, gun violence, they're they're involved in political issues and are ready to take action. And so, but they're doing that on their own time. Mm -hmm. They're not doing that yeah. during school time, and the schools are not giving them that time to do that. So mm -hmm. there definitely needs to be an emphasis within that, those school hours for students to to be able to take. Um, you know, more, more time and more care and attention into our civic, um, you know, our civic system and then basically allow for them to create more time. I think that there is an opportunity um, for schools to allow for maybe, you know, credits or even classes or, mm -hmm. you know, opportunities for students to actually go out into the field yeah, and be able yeah. to do some of that civic work. Yeah, I, I, I would just add uh, that civics in school is an element one of the ways you build uh, an engagement with political life and a, and a sense that it's your duty to, to participate and, and, and vote. I'm just remembering, and it's been a while, but it was Jerry Namie's class, civics class, in high school in the Spokane Valley, uh, where I really got interested in politics. And that's a class I remember more than the algebra and the biology and the other classes I took uh, in high school because we, did, we had this little magazine called uh, Scholastic, Junior yeah. Scholastic. Mm -hmm. And we talked about issues and we talked about voting and we talked about what was important for the country. And you took that away with you. And I think, uh, you know, there are a lot of factors uh, why we have lower voter turnout and people are discouraged. But if you have that engagement from, from your school experience, it is an element that can push you. Uh, into into taking on that duty and becoming engaged. Yeah, I would also add one more thing that, to bounce off of that, which is the way that we've incorporated civics into our education um, today is through um, uh, actually the the television programs. I think it's like Scholastic TV or something like that. Oh, that's um, right. That one. Yeah. yeah. So so students can actually watch these you know programs that you know talk about current events, what's happening in the news, what's happening around the world. 
Um, and you know, I think you can argue that there is definitely a bias in where that news is coming from and what perspective is being shown and what's being excluded in that too. So I mean, you know, I have two younger sisters that are in middle school and high school right now, and both of them have come home um, expressing concern and and um, discomfort that mm -hmm. some of the programs that were shown, some of the episodes, would talk about 9/11 or would talk about terrorism or would talk about right. foreign policy in a way that then encouraged a conversation in class that targeted them and directed conversation towards yeah. them. And they were called out, being the only Muslim students in class, to have to respond to you know, our, our stance on foreign policy, right. right? And so that puts students today in a very you know, uncomfortable position where you know, the kind of divisive politics you were talking about earlier are actually starting to permeate at a much younger level. Just to come into class and, and coming into, into the classroom, exactly. Yeah. So I yeah. think that, that definitely needs to change as well too. Here's a question that I'll just toss out, uh, and it may or may not have any validity to it, but society, uh, our country is becoming, the world is becoming much more complex as a place to live in. Uh, in terms of we have issues that we're talking about. I know both of you talked about the Sunrise Movement. Uh, as someone with background as both a journalist and an atmospheric scientist, uh, I see a lot of the dialogue shows absolutely no understanding of that science. We have bioethics issues. We have artificial intelligence. How do you get to a place where the people running for office uh, have more background in this and are more comfortable talking about it, because right now that seems part of the reason there's such a gloss on some of these issues. They want a short, quick answer because they really don't have any background in it. Well, and part of how I approach it in a largely rural district mm -hmm. is uh, is not really focusing on the science. You know, we held a Green New Deal forum in the Walla Walla mm -hmm. Valley recently, and we've done one in Spokane, and uh, at the Walla Walla one it was largely farmers, several hundred. Mm -hmm. and. When I bring the Green New Deal to different communities, I'm not trying to convince them of the climate science. Mm -hmm. uh, most people have their made up, mind made up, and I'm not a climate scientist. But what I do know is that we desperately need jobs. We mm -hmm. desperately need housing. And so these communities that have traditionally been left behind, and especially in eastern Washington, a lot of them were built by the New Deal. The New Deal actually brought uh, a lot of vitality and growth to our farming and rural communities in eastern Washington. We're just tying it to something different. That's what I'm telling them about. I believe that we need to take climate action and that this is a climate crisis. But just like when we entered World War II, they say, how, do you, how are you going to pay for it? When we entered World War II, we didn't say, what tax are we going to institute to pay for World War II? And whether it was the trillions of dollars spent in, in you know, World War II, Iraq, Afghanistan, Vietnam, everything in between, or uh, you know, taking action on climate change, we are able to take effective, quick action. Why not do it to help the people? Suddenly, there's a budget problem as soon as it, come, as it comes to helping people. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I don't. I think that's part of the brilliance of the Green New Deal as a policy: is go ahead and don't believe in climate change. Let's get you some jobs. Let's get you some housing. You know, uh, Ansel Payne, who was the president of King Broadcasting when I worked there for many years. Uh, I had a number of conversations with him because he had been involved in politics. One of the things he used to talk about was that the, the bedrock, the essential foundation of a democracy is an informed citizenry. And you know, you pose a very interesting question. A, a citizenry is not going to be uh, conversant in climate right. science and, and the whole range of issues that faces. But they, there needs to be enough information that they can trust and absorb that allows them to vote intelligently when it comes time to cast a ballot for a candidate. And that's a much larger question here. Uh, 
How do you teach people in an age where our information is balkanized through all social media and in many, many uh, ways different than 40, 50 years ago when you had three national newspapers and three uh, national television networks and those were the sources of your information basically. Now it's just balkanized over a whole landscape. So one of the things I think we need to learn as a citizen, and it could happen could begin in school, how do you filter through that to find the places of information that you can trust? Yes, because it can't just end at, in high school. It can't be right. done. That's yeah. that people, is a continuing yeah. kind of thing, but if you don't know where to go for information you trust, I mean, some of the people interviewed who don't vote say, you know what, I just can't keep up with it. I'm fed up with it. I don't believe any of it. I don't even know who to trust. And they drop out. So that's purposeful, by the way. That's that's not an accident. Oh, so this of course, you've got a president who says uh, fake news yeah. about anything that uh, is is a critique of of his policy or his personality, uh, and that that is repeated again and again. It might be the most repeated phrase of this presidency: <laughs> fake news. Well, it's a purposeful propaganda tactic yeah. founded by the Putin administration. So my background educationally is in uh, is in homeland. I have a master's in homeland security. Mm-hmm. And so um, this is this is in my field, and uh, it is intentional. It is a purposeful tactic. It is meant to conf- it is meant to leave the public confused and just wanting to check out. In fact, that's something that the Russian government does. Is when something happens, they don't just tell you know like the Stalin tactic of make you know kill anyone who doesn't say exactly what you want. Instead, they say one news station you're going to run. The true story, and now nine other stations, you're all going to run different stories with different yeah. information. I'd argue that's really the challenge for democracy going forward, because you're right. There is confusion about information, and when you're confused, you tend to you tend to pull out, you tend to just disengage. And I think uh, you know this election is a is a testing time for us, but that's the larger test for all of us going forward. So, how, in the face of disinformation campaigns? How do you approach that? How do you counter that? Any thoughts on that? And I'll start with you, Chris, since that is your area then. I appreciate it. Uh, and it's really... <laughs> go for it. <laughs> well, it's, it's just, you know what? I'm not going to have an answer that's probably too different from either of them, though. Right. It's conversations and calling people out. Uh, I think that campaigns that are afraid to call a lie a lie mm-hmm. are harming this country. Uh, well, an expression I heard about uh, journalism was that a journalist's job isn't to say, uh, oh, some people say it's raining and some people say it's not. It's to stick their head out the window and tell us if it's raining. Mm-hmm. And so that's something I think we need to demand truth. We need to demand honesty. My, for example, my opponent has continually claimed in public that uh, she didn't uh, or that she supported protecting pre-existing conditions. That's public record. That's just something you can look up. We have to demand it loudly, and we have to let them know we're coming after their seats for lying and deceiving, lying and deceiving us. Um, you know, it can it can start in school. Uh, but he's going back to what uh, we were talking about before. Uh, uh, I've always thought I used to preach this when I went out to school sometimes to talk. You need some kind of class. I don't know whether it's a civics class. It probably would be related to that. To begin to to discuss with people how you filter through uh, this realm of information that we have now. We have more access to information than anybody in history, anyone in history at any time. But what, what's reliable? What can you trust? Where do you go to find that? Those are things that we need to learn as a people over time. It'd be difficult. It, one thing that I've noticed uh, in the last uh, six, eight years or so is the fact-checking that goes on. 
Uh, Washington Post does it well, so does the New York Times, The Guardian does it as well. Um, they'll fact check things that are said at a State of the Union speech or some other uh, debate, and that's invaluable in a way in catching out people who s simply repeat distortions time after time. Yeah, we, oh sorry, I just want to ask one question. Um, so you mentioned we should teach it, but uh, the generations that are the most susceptible to believing fake news are not the Zoomers, they're not the high schoolers, uh, it's older generations that are newer to the internet. So I think the people who are coming up around it do have a better sense of um, when they're being deceived. We're in a time where that disinformation, you know, you can kind of pull back the, you know, the layers of the onion and say, okay, well, you know, when one lie comes forward, you know, you definitely need that, that front line to say, to call it out, to call out a lie. Um, you know, whether that's from another candidate or whether that's from the community, right? Whether that's from the voters. Um, but, you know, holding elected officials accountable is our job as well as a job of our, our press. I mean, you know, the press is, is intended to be a watchdog on government, is intended Absolutely. to hold our government accountable. And while, yes, like the New York Times, Washington Post have these ongoing fact-checking, you know, data on our president and our, our elected officials, um, unfortunately what's happened is another layer as you keep going is that people don't even trust media, right? That's where you get yeah. the fake news spin, that's where it all kind of starts to get blurred so people feel like they don't know who to believe. And the reality is, yes, there is a place for change, obviously within the people that are running for office, the people that um, need to be honest to their voters, um, but also definitely in, in among media, among mm -hmm. press, among journalism. Um, you know, when I, I studied journalism at the University of Washington, and at the time, I was one of very few people of color, um, you know, that were studying journalism. And what we know for a fact, the data shows that 70% of newsrooms are white, mm -hmm. right? That's not the demographics of our country at all. And we need that representation. And I believe, I truly believe that because we don't have a representative um, press room in, you know, across our country and at the, you know, in mainstream media and now in minority media, um, we definitely, we definitely are getting that sense of, of um, uh, ex you know, people who are excluded and data that's excluded. So what we've seen is, you know, for instance, with polling, right? And polling in elections, this year's 2020 election and the 2016 election, what we saw in 2016 was that the polls did not reflect the voter, you know, turnout, right? Mm -hmm. While Hillary Clinton did win the popular vote, she did not win the electoral vote, which is what the polls were showing. So there's definitely room for, um, for, for recognizing that because certain people are, are left out politically, mm -hmm. they are also left out from, from being included in the conversations within the newsrooms, within expert you know, panelists yeah. as well and commentary. You know, Bernie Sanders as a candidate has been often spun, mostly been spun negatively through mainstream media. And so we have to kind of question why, why is that happening right now? Well, let me ask this question because we're talking about getting good information. What do each of you do to try to keep up on the flow of news and opinion and uh, perspective and realizing that the average viewer or listener is not going to have that amount of time or that motivation, what would you recommend they do to stay informed? I read three newspapers. Uh, I read the Wall Street Journal, I read uh, the Seattle Times, I read uh, actually four, the Washington Post and the New York Times. The Wall Street Journal I read mostly for the editorial because I like to see what uh, people I don't agree with are writing and talking about. I also like to get a perspective from abroad. I was born in England, uh, 
and I still I love to read The Guardian and find out what you know what's happening with Boris Johnson and the like. But I think you know you have to figure out over time you will know who you trust because uh, what they've been reporting did it turn out to be true or not? Did it did they were they close to it? And so I think you have to give yourself a wide. Uh, range like that. I actually am a really big fan of Reddit and the world news and politics sections in particular, but even more than just reading the articles, I like reading the comment sections and seeing how people debate uh, the sources that are presented and the possible bias of the papers. I've learned uh, multiple media sources that I enjoy. Uh, you know, reading comment sections uh, on Reddit, I'll see people point out who they're receiving money from because it all comes back to the money. But keeping a really diverse um, you know, set of, uh, of media, I think, is especially important. And then also, people are so wrapped up in the national politics right now, and I get it, there's horrific things going on. Just a few weeks ago, uh, I visited uh, the ICE Tacoma, uh, Tacoma ICE mm -hmm. Detention Facility. It's horrific what's going on. But also, stay engaged with your local politics. Stay engaged with your local community because you have so much more, for one, there's less bias in the stuff you read, and then two, you actually have much more of an ability to make an impact, and that, that grows, you know, it creates ripples. Varisha, in the local yeah. community, we've seen a lot of local newspapers, you know, vanish. vanish. What are options that are out there that you feel are effective? You know, local blogs that, you know, neighborhood beats that community yeah. members have taken up time to, to, mm -hmm. to work on are definitely insightful because um, they often bring in the perspective of just the average community member right. and are, you know, as an informed community member that's running that, they often have conversations and get perspectives from other mm -hmm. members of the community too. So you start to kind of get more of an on the ground feel of what's happening literally yeah. in your own neighborhood. You find those, get after them. Yeah, yeah exactly. The other thing I would like to, 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 to just put on the table a lot of people don't bother to vote, or even those some who do think they're powerless, they're not going to make a difference. You are not powerless. That is the ultimate source of power in a democratic system, is you voting, taking an interest in what's going on around you, reading, finding out about candidates, and voting. Because if you get a government that's not working for you, you are, you know, a lot of factors going in there, money is that we've talked about and other things, but you cast the ballots that make the difference. And so I just want to say you are not powerless. Be sure to be informed and vote. Yeah. Well, thank you, each one of you. I think we could have easily doubled our time on this with all the wonderful perceptions that you shared. And I would say I'd hope each of you would accept an invitation to come back, maybe after the 2020 elections, and see what we've learned there and what That'll is needed to get more uh, involvement and participation going forward. So thank you, each one of you. Well, thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you for having us. And thank you very much for joining us on this edition of Challenge 2.0. We hope you'll join us again next week. If you've enjoyed this program, please give us five stars and leave a review. If you can also tell one friend about the show, that would be great. You can find us on social media at Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find out more and financially support the show at pathstounderstanding.org. The program is hosted by executive producer Jeff Renner, produced by Tom Butterworth and John Sharifi. Cameras and audio by Richard McAdams, Tom Butterworth, and Dean Cuccio. Ian Olson is the production assistant.